0: First Chronicles chapter 19. Now, the last time we were together, we considered, obviously, because uh, we go chapter by chapter, we, we did chapter 18, and there what we saw in chapter 18 was a series of battles. We just moved one battle after another as David was seeking to secure the land of Israel so that when the temple was built, uh, not only would it have the gold and silver necessary to ordain the structure, but more significantly that the, the place would be able to enjoy peace. And that the people could go and they could worship and they can know that they would be able to worship in a place of peace and safety. And now David comes in chapter 19, and if you will, his efforts are continuing. He's still trying to secure the peace of the nation here. Now we have a map, and I I showed you this map last week. Uh, This basically, these are the places that David conquered last uh, time we were together. Chapter 18. And if you look at that, basically he has formed a perimeter around the nation, north, south, uh, and on the east side there. Uh, and the west side is the Mediterranean Sea, so the area is safe. But if you kind of if you look closely here, we see that one little area there? Did you see how I did that? I shot that arrow right up there. Um, that one little area there still remains open. And, and I imagine, you know, they, they have a big map on the wall of the, the House of David there, and, you know, they're kind of looking at this, and the generals come in, and they say, all right, we have this one little weakness we got to take care of that and they they tell him the name of the place and they mention it and and i suspect that david says well maybe we could go about this differently rather than attacking and taking over this particular area i know the king of that area he's an old friend and and rather than attacking them maybe we could work out a diplomatic uh, negotiation with him so that you know we we get what we want but we don't have to kill anybody in this process Uh, I don't know if that's actually what happened here, but as we read in chapter 19, what we see is that the area of land used to be under the control of a man by the name of Nahash, and Nahash died. Now David, when he was an enemy of the state running from King Saul, Nahash showed kindness to him. And now he's dead, and he wants to send a flower and a fruit basket to his funeral uh, and and basically open up a conversation with his son, the new king, Uh, And rather than go to war with him. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. Chapter 19 begins this way. It says, Now after this, Nahash the king of the Ammonites died, and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal kindly with Hanan, the son of Nahash, for his father dealt kindly with me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. Now nowhere in the scripture do we have the record of when Nahash or how Nahash showed kindness to him. But we do have record of Nahash in chapter 11 of the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, you may recall, we talked about this a little while ago, King Nahash, who, well the map's gone here, but you saw where King Nahash lived there, just on the, uh, I always get it wrong, but on the east side there of the Jordan River, he decided he was going to come against an Israelite city. Uh, This is back long before David, during the time that King Saul was the king, just had become the king, so it was at least 40 years earlier. And he decides he wants to come against this city that is called Jabesh-Gilead. So he goes marching into Jabesh-Gilead, and when he gets there, the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they realize, we can't fight this guy. There's no way that we're going to win this here. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, they say to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Look, no reason for anybody to die. We just give up. Uncle. You know, we give in, uh, no need to fight you win. So Nahash got what he wanted. He wanted the city. He wanted the victory. But he also wants to send sort of this message. So he wasn't just satisfied with the victory here over uh, the people of Jabesh-gilead. Notice what he says in First Samuel chapter 11 verse two. He says, "Well, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace upon Israel. Can you imagine? No, I know. I don't want to imagine that. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, That's the statement, though, that he's trying to make. He wants to bring disgrace on all of Israel. So now I suspect the people of Jabesh Gilead, they go back and they're thinking, and they're having a little conversation, what do you think it actually feels like to have your eyeball gouged out? I I suspect it doesn't feel pretty good uh, to have your eyeball gouged out. I don't want my eyeball gouged out. You know, perhaps there's another plan that we can come up with a a door number two Uh, remember that game neil you remember that game show i like it because you're old i'm just teasing (laughs) i'm just kidding Um, neil and i are buddies we went to the men's retreat together so we're we're good we can poke fun at each other Um, just don't poke fun at me anyway so he uh you have this and they're like you know i don't like this idea so they contact king saul now saul had just become the king prior to that time The nation of Israel, it was a nation, but it was really 12 tribes that just sort of did their own thing and had their own leaders and stuff. Judges came along a little bit that would periodically unite them. But now they're united. They're united under King Saul. And word gets to King Saul. uh, The the people of Jabesh Gilead said, give us a week, and we'll come back, and we'll let you know what we're going to do. And Nahash, I suspect, is like, perfect. Goes back, we won, these guys are not going to have big parties and celebrations, and look how great of a king I am. But in the meantime, the people of Jabesh Gilead went to Saul, and they said, look, here's the problem. This guy wants to gouge out our eyes, bring disgrace on all of Israel, and we will become his slaves, or he's just going to kill us. You know, We'd rather live, but we don't want to live under those circumstances. Is there anything you can do? And King Saul, you begin to see sort of his uh, leadership of this new nation. He says in verse 7 of chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, it said, when Saul heard these words, his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out for Saul, after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Wow. So he said, Look, we're going to battle. I know this isn't our battle. This wasn't even in the land of Israel. Remember, it was on the other side of the Jordan River where some of the tribes of Israel decided they would um, set. But he said, We're going out to battle, and we're going to fight. Saul gathers, we learn in that chapter, 330,000 men. And they go up against Nahash, and as you can imagine, they're, they're victorious there. So they have their victory, and Nahash now hates Saul. And so we don't know this for fact, but scholars suggest that this is the time, during this period where David was the key enemy of Saul, that Nahash says, oh, I get it, Saul doesn't like you, so I like you because I don't like Saul. The enemy of my enemies is my friend sort of thing. And so he decides, I'm going to show David kindness. And and that probably means that when David was on the run, he said, come here, I'll give you a safe place to stay, I'll give you some food or something like that for a period of time. And it was during that difficult period of time that from time to time people showed kindness to David. I believe that the Lord was prompting their heart to do that, and they showed kindness to David, and David doesn't forget that. Those few times of respite in the 15 years of running as Israel's most wanted criminal, those people that showed him kindness. And so... David now wants to respond, show gratitude to Nahash. Nahash has died. He wants to honor him in some way or another in his death. He wants to comfort his son in some way. So today, what would we do? We'd we'd send uh, maybe ourselves or we'd send somebody as a representative, if we were the king, to to attend someone's funeral. We'd send them flowers or a fruit basket or something like that. Uh, And so he does that sort of thing. Notice what it says in in verse 2 the latter portion of the verse, it says, Now David's servants, they came to the land of the Ammonites to Hanan to console him. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanan took David's servants, and he shaved them, and he cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and he sent them away and they departed. Now when David was told concerning the men, he sent messengers to meet them. For the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and return. The name Hanan means gracious. Uh, sadly, unfortunately, his response to these messengers that are coming is anything but gracious. And you, you heard the story. Sadly, his advisors were able to convince him that, there's no way that these guys are really coming here to express their condolences to you. They're spies. They come into this land. They can see the land. Look at verse 3 again. Have not his servants come to you to search out the land to overthrow uh, you to spy on the land? That's not why they went. They honestly went to bring flowers and to the lay them at the tombstone. But unfortunately, their intentions and their motivations were questioned. Have you ever had your intentions questioned? Have you ever had your integrity doubted? Th- you could do a lot of things to me. You could show up late for something, and eh, things happen or whatever, and you could you know, not be my friend or whatever it may be, and that, I can deal with that. But I do not like having my intentions questioned and my integrity doubted. This is the life I'm trying to live. I'm trying to build a reputation as a person of integrity and honesty, and then for people to doubt that, that I just don't like that. So don't do it. I'm just teasing you know, but I, I just don't, I don't like that. And, and here, you've probably been there. Now, here's the thing. I suspect David knew that his intentions might be doubted because people did this sort of thing all the time. They sent people into the land as if they were going to do A, when in reality they were coming into that land to do B and to spy it out and to bring a report to come back and say, this is the best way to attack. People did that during that day, maybe today, I don't know, but they did that during that day all the time. And I'm sure David knew that. He was aware of that scheme. But I think what we see here is he took the chance anyway. So he knew that they might question his intentions, but he was determined that he was going to show kindness anyway because God had prompted him to show that kindness. G. Campbell Morgan, in his uh, resource uh, Life Applications from Every Chapter of the Bible, he said this. He said, Man is always richer in the best things of character who is big enough to act in accord with the promptings of a generous nature, even though such action might be misinterpreted and resented. It's a great thing to hold one's own life true to the highest ideals, even though in doing so, risks may be taken of being thus slandered." You know, unfortunately, we live in a day where our intentions are consistently questioned. People kind of look at us and they wonder, what's your angle? You know, what are you trying to do here? What are you trying to pull over on me? Nobody does that sort of thing. We saw this when we went around to cut trees down for people. We just went door to door. Their trees had fallen, and we said, look, we've got 40 people here. We're willing to cut the tree down and bring it out. And, and people said, they, w- they would kind of pull back, and they'd look at you like, what are you talking about? What do you want? I said, nothing. We don't want anything. I didn't even want to come to the door, but I just felt like I should, you know, before we went on your yard with chainsaws. Uh, but people w- some people said, no, that's okay. I'll take care of myself. They're like 80. I'll take care of it myself. How are you going to take care of it? You know what I mean? But there were people that questioned our intention. You know, just in the news this week, you have the story of uh, Governor Christie when he met with President Obama. And the two of them are marching up and down uh, the beaches. And, and uh, Governor Christie is, you know, emotionally as he was and so on from the experience. And President Obama comes in and he comforts him and uh, offers his support and all this. And Governor Christie makes the statement Thank you, President Obama. I appreciate everything. He gave him a hug or something, because apparently that's what we do in Jersey. We hug guys and stuff like that. So he gave him a big bear hug um, and swallowed up President Obama. Uh, and, uh, and then a little bit later, he says, I really appreciate all that President Obama's doing. He's doing a great job. Well, now the whole Republican world hates Governor Christie. Because, see, that, well, you caused the election, and why did you do it? You did it because you wanted to be the president, and you wouldn't be the president. And got his intention, he said, no, I just thought the guy did a great job, and I thought he should know that. You know what I'm saying? But how often we're afraid now to show kindness, to show generosity to another person, because we're afraid of the way that it's going to be interpreted, and so we just don't do anything. And then nobody does anything, and we live in this horrible world. You see what I'm saying? So why don't we just do what God tells us to do, and let the chips fall where they may. And so David does that. So David here, he shows his kindness. And it's unfortunately not responded to or handled very well. Now, that's David's perspective. I'm also seeing it from Hanan's perspective. You know, we could look at him and you say, you dummy. You know, what were you doing? Why would you do that? You, you misinterpreted. Well, he doesn't know. He, he Maybe he met David, you know, some 20, 30 years ago. Perhaps he met them when he was a little boy or whatever. But he doesn't know David. And so his advisors come to him and he says, okay, And he listens to them. All he knows about David is what he's been reading in the newspapers. That he had a victory here and a victory here and a victory here and a victory here. And he's defeating this guy and this guy and this guy. And I'm next. You know, he has a map going. Remember that map? He has a map in his house too. And he's seeing all the places. And he saw the little blue arrow pop up. And he knows that he's next. And so he says, you know what? Preemptively, we're going to take care of this. Today, I've entitled today's message, Be Careful Who You Take Advice From. It's not wrong to need advice or to seek advice. And I think this young king, brand new on the job, needed advice. And so he calls advisors together and he asks advice from them. And we would be wise to be people that seek the advice of others. But who do you get your advice from is key. Who is influencing you and who is helping you make your decisions? As we're going to see in the rest of our text, the people that we listen to if it's the wrong people, it can get us into all sorts of trouble. So, heeding the advice of his counselors, look at verse 4. Hanan took David's servants, he shaved them, he cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and he sent them away, and they departed. Now, you know, he didn't cut the garment in the middle at the hips and leave the bottom part. He left the top part. So, they had a short little dress on or something like that that didn't cover uh, the necessities there. Uh, and so, they were sent on their way. Now, it was a great disgrace for an adult male in Israel to have his beard shaped. Um, It says in Leviticus 19 in particular, not just a beard, but it talks about, and if you go to Israel, we're going to be going over to Israel basically in February, but if you go to Israel, you'll notice there are some of the Orthodox Jews, and and they're in the United States here in some uh, New York City and other places as well, where they'll let basically their sideburns grow, and it'll become sort of this curly lock that comes all the way down here. That comes from this verse, but it says, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or more the edges of your beard. And so the Israelites took that very seriously. And so upon becoming a man, uh, they would begin to let the beard grow. And barring sickness or th- something like that, that thing would just grow and it would grow and it would grow. And it would be, be a mark of great honor. And so here are these guys. They're shaved clean. You know, and they look like little kids now you know, coming out there. That's one. And then even more disgraceful is they're, they're walking back naked or half-naked. So these were insults. And they were insults that could not be ignored. They would be considered acts of war. You know, it's one thing if they did it to you, and you say, you know what, I'm going to forgive you for that. It's another thing here. This is one nation coming against another, uh, basically spitting in the other nation's face. And so it was something that could not necessarily be ignored. Um, And it was designed to provoke David for action. I think Hanan is getting ready to pick a fight. That's what he wants here. He wants to pick a fight with David, which we're going to see is a big mistake. So these men, they're too humiliated to go back to Jerusalem. You can imagine that that's the military headquarters of the country. And here come these soldiers, half naked with no beards. They're not going back to the city. So they found a neighboring city uh, there, it says, of Jericho. And David sends men to go meet them. And he encourages them. And he says, it's going to be okay. I'll take care of you. I'll defend your honor. Just stay here. Let your beards grow. Uh, get some clothes on, and then return um, eventually. Now, word filters back to Hanan that David is mad. It says in the King James in verse six that uh, Hanan learned that he had become odious to David. I'm not really sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. It, it means it became a stench. Uh, I don't like you anymore. Is what it means. Uh, and now David's your enemy. And You know, have you ever had kids that they'll say something like, ooh, you're in trouble, you know, kind of thing? I'll tell you a quick story. I have three brothers, me and two other brothers at my house, and now we're all my age or or older. We're bigger uh, and stuff, but we still act like little boys. And so when we get to the house, times wrestling will break out or something like that in the home. And one time, uh, my oldest brother, who's now 50, threw my 42-year-old brother through a wall. Um, Big hole in the wall. It's okay. Everybody's fine. You know, but big hole in the wall kind of thing. And so, you know, it's one of these, like, he came out of the wall, and there was the impression of him there. And my, old, my, my brother, his name is Scott, just laughed. My mom is sitting right there cooking the turkey. Uh, just laughed at my older brother, and he said, you're in trouble, kind of thing. <laughs> so I think that's what happened here. Uh, they realized that uh, David is mad. It's, ooh, you're in trouble now, uh, Hanan. Maybe that one advisor who said, I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, is the one who said, ooh. But look at verse 6. It says, Now when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, Hanan and the Ammonites sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Aram, Makkah, and from Zabah. They hired 32,000 chariots and the king of Makkah with his army who came and encamped before Mediba. And the Ammonites were mustered from their cities and came to battle. Now when David heard of it, He sent Joab, who's the commander of his forces, and all the Ammonites came out, and they drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the open country. Now we don't know if he was trying to provoke a fight, but he's got a fight. And now he's reacting to this fight that is sure to come by acting preemptively. The area that he uh, gathers these people up, they come from the extreme north. You, You see the names there, Mesopotamia, Remember when you were in school and you were learning about Mesopotamia and you never paid any attention to it? You should have because now we're learning these things and you have no idea where it is. And I'm not telling you because <laughs> you should have paid attention in school. Um, but this is, you're making your way up t- today toward um, Iraq and northern Syria and so on, the area of Mesopotamia. And he gathers up these people. Verse 7 says there's 32,000 people. Okay, additionally, the Ammonites, that's um, Hanan's people, they're the Ammonites, they go out as well. Uh, and they gather for battle. And, and the, the point is that Israel's going to be in the middle of this battle and to the north of the people that are coming out of the region of Mesopotamia, to the south of where the Ammonites are going to gather, and they're going to basically have to fight too. So David realized this. He sends his best. He sends Joab, and he says, go and take care of this. Look at verse 10. Joab, he saw that the battle was set against him at the front and in the rear, and he chose some of the best men of Israel, to uh, array them against the Syrians, uh, knowing that they're the more powerful army, so put the best guys there. Verse 11, The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and they were arrayed against the Ammonites. So they split the army in half, uh, and they, they basically worked back-to-back with one another, pointing out, pointing toward the enemy armies there. Now, Joab, as I said, is David's general. Um, Abishai, he was a member of David's elite group that you may recall when we looked was called the thirty. Uh, He was the leader of that group. And so both of these men, they've gone in the battle. They've had success. They've been victorious in the past. Look at verse 12. And Joab said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be strong. Let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab essentially says, Look, we're going to do what we can do in this thing, and then we're going to leave it in the hands of God. And I think that's pretty important here. And I think that is the best strategy uh, that we want to face here. If you look at Joab, there's great odds against him. But essentially, he gives himself the best chance that he can to win. Number one is that he realizes that Joab and Abishai are on the same team. What would have happened if they go into battle here? Now they're brothers, and you know how brothers can be competitive and so on. But what if they go into battle... And Joab really wants to make a name for himself out of all this. And Abishai really wants to make a name for himself. I'm tired of just being number two. I want to be number one. And so rather than working together to accomplish victory, they sort of only do what's best for themselves. Every man for himself, you've heard that expression uh, before. Bad decision. Wouldn't it be great if the church thought more like Joab? And when I say the church, I mean the church, Christianity, meeting in this room as well as the other uh, rooms around the world. Uh, today wouldn't it be great if we sort of worked together as opposed to who's going to get the credit who's going to get the claim what ministry is going to be lifted up what church uh you know are we going to point people to as a result of what it is that we're trying to do you know we went out into battle so to speak when we cut those trees down and what was great is there was about 15 people from calvary and then another church about 10 or 12 people pulled up and they gathered with us and working together as 30 made the job manageable but if we said no no you can't come this is only Calvary Chapel people. Sorry, you, your church has to go somewhere else. Wouldn't that have been a serious mistake? And rather, we got to partner with Grace Way, the Nazarene Fellowship over on uh, Bull Run Road, and it was a blessing, and we were able to get a lot of work accomplished. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that about Joab. I don't care who gets the credit. Let's just win this thing. Number two, Joab is determined to do everything in his power, as I said, and then leave the results to God. I think what often happens is we fall on one or two sides of this pendulum here. Either we become a people that work and work and work and work and work and I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to accomplish this task or we become a people that, well, you know what, God will do what God's going to do and what's the big deal? We'll just let God do what he's going to do and we don't put any effort forth and God's just going to have to come forward with that. But what we see in the scripture is there's a healthy balance between it. You know, you hear people quote this quote, God helps them that help themselves. Well, that's not Bible. Uh, That's Ben Franklin. Uh, And... There's an aspect of it. In some cases, that is true. If you take it to the place, though, of salvation, it's the exact opposite. God helps those who have no ability to help themselves, and he sends forth his son, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, so that we might have salvation. But I like what Arnold Palmer said. So I'm quoting Bible and Arnold Palmer. I like what Arnold Palmer said. He said, you know, golf is a game of luck. The more I practice, the luckier I get. You know, and, and I think it's that way in our efforts for the Lord. The more diligent we are about our studies, the more diligent we are about our prayer life, the more diligent we are about our preparation and our work and our efforts uh, to push forth the kingdom of God and so on, the luckier we get, so to speak. You, you begin to see the results and so on. So that's one side of it. But if it's only about us huffing and puffing, then we burn out. On the other side of it, though, is this idea of just giving it over to the Lord. And I think that's a mistake as well. We must bring the Lord into it. We must be praying through it. We must be following his lead. But we balance that with our efforts. And God uses our efforts, as he does with Joab, and then he brings about the result that he would desire. And so that is one of the reasons why we are having these prayer meetings uh, that I would really hope you can carve out some time to attend this evening. is because we want to be a people that are hearing the voice of the Lord, De- demonstrating our dependence on the Lord and giving it all over to him. All of our efforts, all the things that we worked so hard throughout the weeks, uh, week and weeks to accomplish, we want to give that to him and ask him to continue to guide us. Joab here is doing that, leaves it in the Lord's hand. Verse 14 says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near before the Syrians for battle, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai joab's brother and they entered the city then joab returned or came to jerusalem so the ammonites aren't much to fight they if the syrians are leaving we're leaving even though it's their battle Um, but joab says good we won and he goes back to jerusalem david is in jerusalem and he reports to david the victory is ours now look at verse 16 but when the syrians saw that they had been defeated by israel they sent messengers and they brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, so even further north. And they said, we need reinforcements. And they brought this fellow by the name of Shaphak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. So they, got, they have the big guns now. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together. He crossed the Jordan and came to them, and he drew up his forces against them. So they bring their big gun, we bring our big gun. And our big gun here, um, according to Joab, is King David. And when David, one commentator I read said, when David goes out to battle, David goes out to win. You know, that's it, we're done. No more playing around with this thing. This problem is over with. Probably should have did this in the first place, but I wanted to be a nice guy, uh, he says there. And so David goes out. Uh, And again, I want to put myself in the sandals of Hanan here. Here he is. Clearly, he blundered. He made a terrible... Uh, decision. He misquestioned, or he uh, misinterpreted the motivations of these people. Clearly they're coming in as spies or something. And, and he made a big mistake here, certainly, listening to these advisors. What if after that mistake, if he went to David somehow through a letter or whatever it may be, but he went to David and he said, you know what? I'm sorry. I made a huge mistake, a terrible decision. I'm a brand new king. you know, and I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm doing the best I can here. Would you please forgive me? David might have accepted that. We kind of know the heart of David, and, and we suspect he probably would have accepted that. It made him pay some kind of a penalty for making his men come home naked. But, uh, but he would have probably left it at that, knowing David. But rather than doing that, instead, seeing that David was angered by his actions, remember when it said that he, made, he became a stench in the nostrils of David? He preemptively strikes out against Israel. So he compounds the problem. And then he loses. What if following that defeat, he came to David and he said, you know what, I give up. I'm sorry, I just keep making mistake after mistake. It's getting worse and worse. Would you forgive me? What if he did that then? But he didn't. Instead, he gathers more men. This time from way up beyond the Euphrates. And and I bring this up because I think that's what happens in our lives sometimes. You know, we're blowing it. And to fix our mistake... We're, we begin to make more mistakes and more mistakes and more mistakes. You know, you think about when you're cranky. Anybody here ever get cranky? Nobody. <laughs> I would like a show of hands of people that in the last week got cranky. Very good. Okay. I was cranky the other day. I forget what day it was. Man, it was, I was just cranky. So anyway, um, you know, you're having this bad day. You're sort of mistreating people. And they're kind of calling you on it. They're giving you the look or whatever it may be. And you know, like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm either in trouble here or I'm going to get ready. I'm going to fight this thing out. You know what I mean? And so then you want to fight it out to prove to them that your crankiness was their fault. You see what I'm saying? And so now you're trying to blame it on them and all this sort of stuff. and, And now it's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. What if initially when you noticed in their eyes, my wife in my eye looking at me, you know, when I looked at my wife and, and I realized that I was messing up for that particular time, what if at that point I just stopped and said, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm cranky. And don't ask me about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm just, I just want to go away, you know, and spend some time by myself. The problem with went away. My wife and I, we got into an argument once about um, apple pie or pumpkin pie. <laughs> and what was the appropriate pie for Thanksgiving. And this thing went on for like ten minutes. I'm not even sure if we were married yet, if we were dating. Um, but it went on for about 10 minutes, and it was a fair fight. We weren't yelling or arguing, just, no, no, it, you're wrong. <laughs> you're so naive. It's clearly apple pie, you know, or whatever. <laughs> uh, and we were going back and forth with this argument, and then finally it just hit me. Like, I, I was like, no, no, it is, maybe I'm wrong. It is pumpkin pie, or, or something. And, and now you're probably like, yeah, you're wrong now. You know, it's out. <laughs> but it just sort of like clicked in my mind, that I was, I was wrong. I was on the wrong side of it. And I finally, I said, you know what, I'm wrong. And she like fell over. You know what I mean? <laughs> but she was like, that's okay. You know, sort of thing. And, and what if rather than compounding the mistakes, we just stopped? Here, Hanan compounds it. I think it would be wise for us to say things like, you know what, God, I blew it. Would you forgive me? Or honey, I'm sorry, I've been cranky today and I took it out on you. Or you know what? I should have never done what I did. And rather than trying to work my way out of this, I'm just going to punt the football and start again. You know, one of these sorts of things. Look at verse 17. Hanan doesn't do that. I wish he would have. Verse 17 says, Now when David set the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 7,000 chariots and 40,000 foot soldiers. And he also put uh, to death Shaphat, the commander of their army. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and they became subject to him. That's what David wanted in the beginning, isn't it? And now there's 47,000 men that are um, killed. So the Syrians were not willing to save the Ammonites anymore. Forget it, we're not coming your way anymore. Kay Arthur, in her book uh, on this particular subject here, she says, This all started because Hanan listened to the unwarranted, unfounded suspicions of other people. And again, as I said, the title of my message is Be Careful Who You Take Advice From. If your counselors are foolish, your actions will be foolish. Our counselors are not just the professional people that we go and see and we pay money um, to, to talk things through with. Our counselors are the friends that we're taking advice from and receiving advice from. Our counselors are the Bible teachers that we're listening to, whether it be on the radio or a church or something like that. Our counselors are uh, like the Oprah Winfrey-type talk show programs that are on and that are offering their advice. Our counselors are our peers in school or on the college campus. Our counselors are those people that are throwing advice our way, or they're throwing wisdom, quote-unquote, our way, and they're expecting us to respond to it. And if your counselors are making foolish decisions or giving you foolish advice, and you're heeding that advice, well, then you're going to make foolish actions. Instead, we need to be a people that realizes the importance of seeking wise advice and receiving a counsel from wise individuals. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. You know, a lot of times I'll read through Facebook um, the feed that comes through with my friends, quote-unquote, that are posting things, and sometimes I'll see the advice that people are offering one another. And I'm thinking, oh, man, that's a big mistake. Please don't listen to that advice. It's amazing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We wonder why. Man, my life is just, it's a mess. Because many times it's we've been heeding the advice of foolish counsel. Proverbs 12:15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I'm my own man. I'll make my own decisions. You know, good luck with that. A lot of people have come before you that have learned the ropes, so to speak, and they have wisdom. And a a wise man listens to the advice of those um, wise counselors. I would also suggest that you look to collective wisdom. That is the wisdom of many counselors. Proverbs 11, where there is no counsel, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. You know, many times we, there's a certain attitude of our heart, this is what we want to go do. I want to go do this thing. I really want to go rob a bank. I just would love to have all that money. I want to go rob a bank or something. So I, I go to the, robber, the bank robber's anonymous you know, meeting. What do you guys think? you think I should go rob a bank? And yeah, go do it. It's a great experience or whatever. I, and I find that advice that I wanted, and then I latch onto it, and I go forward with it. Well, I'd encourage you. Ask five, 10, 15 other people. Get the wise advice from a whole bunch of other people. There's safety in that in many counselors. Proverbs 19 says, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And then ultimately, and finally, as it relates to counsel, make sure that the counsel you receive lines up with the Word of God. The counsel that most of us are receiving on a daily basis from the world system that is around us does not line up with the Word of God oftentimes. It lines up with a politically correct system. It lines up with a system that I think seeks to gratify the sinful nature and the flesh but it says in job chapter 12 with god are wisdom and might he has counsel and he has understanding psalm 33 says the counsel of the lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations make sure the counsel that you receive lines up with the word of god if you don't know the word of god well enough get to know it certainly But find someone who does know the Word of God and heeds the Word of God and bring your thing to them and let them speak the truth of the Word of God into your life. Be careful who you take advice from. It got Hanan into a ton of trouble. It cost 50,000 people their lives. And it cost his nation its peace and safety. Let's pray. Father, we just stop. We settle our hearts now, Lord, uh, to continue to hear from you. And Father, even in just this few moments, I, want to, uh, I just want to encourage each person here as they take inventory, what are the things that have been influencing them? Father, what are the things that have been influencing me? Leading me down a path that uh, perhaps you would not have me to go. Father, we want to be a people, Lord, that is uh, in many ways saved from making these errors. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts, Lord, that uh, are marked with humility, ready to acknowledge, I I don't really know, and I need help with this. Father, that we would be people that have hearts that are marked with wisdom, Lord, that we would go uh, to the right place to receive that direction. And Father, I pray we would also be a people of courage, Lord, that when that advice comes our way even if it is painful lord that we would seek to follow as you would have us and father as Psalm One said to us lord, that is a blessed man father i pray for your word that I take its effect in our heart Lord, that we would be a people that have left here today having grown having met with you having been challenged in our faith And being able to leave here with a very practical way to apply this uh, to the events that we're going to encounter this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I once was lost, but now I am found. I once was lost, but now I'm found, so far away.